For almost 2,000 years, the Catholic Church has pointed the way toward salvation through Jesus Christ. For each of us, that journey starts in darkness, as if in a cave. We invite you now to come with us as we seek wisdom and truth by way of faith and reason with your guides, Mark Tuttle and Timothy O'Donnell. Join us in the Catholic Cave. Welcome once again to the Catholic Cave. I'm Kent Blanford in the cave with me, Mr. Mark Tuttle. And we have one of our favorite cave dwellers has rejoined us. Dr. Jason Eberl is back. Welcome back to the cave, Dr. Eberl. How are you? Uh, excellent. Thanks for welcoming me back. It's a pleasure to be here as always. Now, now life has taken you out west, uh, well, a little bit west. So where do you stand? It's about three and a half hours west. About three and a half hours. <laughs> so what are you doing these days? What are you up to? Yeah, so, um, so I'm at St. Louis University, and I direct the Nagy Center for Healthcare Ethics. And um, right now, uh, this particular semester, I'm teaching a exciting graduate seminar on um, metaphysics of persons and personal identity, um, looking at different ways in which uh, philosophers and bioethicists conceive of, of human beings and, and what it means to be a person and uh, what it means for people to come into existence, what, what it means for us to die, and all sorts of other cool stuff. Yeah, that does sound cool. Um, and, and, you know, honestly, it, it sounds very timely and topical if a, if a, a you know, kind of metaphysical philosophical philosophical topic like that can uh, can be timely um, yeah I think there's a lot of things in the news right now that, that touch on that whole idea of identity and you know what what it means to be a human being what it means to be a person and also yeah how we come into being and also how we go out of being um, you know I think that touches on a lot of things that are that are in the headlines um, you know but first I think one of the biggest stories right now grabbing people's attentions as far as medical ethics goes is a story about a gentleman who uh, he had received a, uh, a a transplanted heart that was a, a genetically modified pig heart. And um, you can correct me if I'm wrong, but I understand this was sort of a last resort type of thing, you know, that um, he had kind of come run out of other options, etc. And so um, was willing to undergo this experimentally. And I got got to think that adds a layer of kind of ethical questions um, into the mix. But unfortunately, um, he he passed away a couple um, weeks ago. Mm -hmm. Um, But it's but. most of the doctors and everything are saying, you know, the, the, the transplant itself was, was successful and that this is technology that, that might be able to be used down the road. So um, help us out. What exactly was going on here? Yeah, yeah. Um, so, you know, I, in terms of the details, I only know what's kind of been in the, you know, major media reports. Um, but, yeah, as you correctly noted, uh, this was a gentleman who uh, was at uh, – Sort of last resort, um, he wasn't um, a candidate for a human heart transplant. Uh, my understanding is that it's because he wasn't compliant with physicians' instructions um, in his past medical history. I'm not really sure the details on that, but um, and also getting a human heart is, is, is quite rare. Of course, getting a genetically modified pig heart is also quite rare. Extremely. But the idea is that. <laughs> Is, is that you know the scientists 
um, this is at NYU uh, Langone Medical Center, um, which has kind of been spearheading a lot of these types of um, uh, what we call xenotransplants, transplants of organs across species. Um, you know, they were they were hoping for an opportunity, uh, you know, to test out something like this, and so uh, yeah, this gentleman volunteered, which. As you quickly know, uh, there's all sorts of ethical questions, right? So the first one is, you know, the ethics of xenotransplantation in general. Um, second, uh, the genetic modifications that were done. Um, and third, and, and all this leading to really kind of the crux of the issue, um, the consent uh, that the patient get, you know, gives to participating in this, you know, risky experimental process, which probably did pay off for him insofar as he gained an extra couple months of life that he maybe otherwise wouldn't have had. Um, but, you know, he did eventually die. You know, it ultimately was not successful. But the fact that he lived for a couple months post-transplant is positively indicative that these t this type of xenotransplantation could be uh, more successful in the future. Okay, so let's look a little bit at the science of this. What does it take to genetically modify a heart um, so that it can be grown in a pig and then transplanted into a human being? Yeah, so, you know, the, ma the major issue with any sort of transplant, not just xenotransplant from, you know, one type of species to another, but even in transplanting a human organ from, you know, one human being into another is, you know, what's referred to as transplant rejection, which is, you know, due to the fact that if you put an organ that is not a genetic match to, you know, that, you know, the person you're transplanting into, that person's immune system is going to recognize it as a foreign, uh, as foreign tissue and attack it. And so usually transplant recipients have to take all sorts of, you know, immunosuppressant drugs that basically... Um, you know, you know, you know, suppress their immune system so they won't attack the new organ. It also, unfortunately, makes them susceptible to other types of diseases. And this, you know, of course, been a huge point of discussion. <clears throat> excuse me, with, during the COVID nineteen pandemic, um, you know, that that immunocompromised patients uh, for this or other reasons are you know more susceptible to getting sick or dying from COVID, um, and so. What this modification is, is it's using uh, what's called CRISPR-Cas9, or CRISPR for short, um, uh, relatively new. I mean, it's been around now for several years, but um, uh, it's a gene editing technology. Um, so think about, you know, you're, you're typing in, in Microsoft Word, and you, you hit control, uh, control X and control V, right? You can cut and paste different genes pretty easily um, with, you know, within, in this case, within the genome of a pig to, again, then modify that pig's heart. So the idea is that you, what you're doing is you're, you're taking a, a, an animal, a pig in this case, and you're using CRISPR to modify their genome such that they will grow a heart that is less likely to be rejected by a human being's immune system. So, uh, you know, we've been modifying the genome of animals, um, really, honestly, probably ever since human beings were able to talk. Um, so, you know, the, this idea of genetically modifying animals, 
shouldn't be all that shocking. But on the other hand, you hear it and you get all sorts of, you know, pictures of, you know, Island of Dr. Moreau and, and other things going on. What are the, what are the ethical limits? I mean, where are the, the lines, the, the bright red lines that, that we shouldn't really be crossing when it comes to genetically modifying animals? Mm-hmm. So there's two ways of looking at this. So, so first of all, you're exactly right, uh, Mark, that, that humans have been, you know, messing around with Mother Nature, messing around with God's creation, um, you know, since we uh, were first created, right? Adam, the first thing Adam does after God creates them is he names the animals. That's not the same as genetically modifying them, but it is showing the, 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 from, the, from the get-go that human intelligence is always going to, at the very least, categorize nature, and then not long thereafter start, um, start modifying nature. And, you know, we've done this with crops, so you hear a lot of discussions about genetically modified organisms, right, genetically modified foods. Um, and, and, yeah, this does seem to be like a, um, you know, this CRISPR technology. It's, it's a, like I said, a relatively new tool that we have, but it's just a tool that allows to do more easily something that, as you know, we actually have been doing for, you know, throughout human history. <coughs> Excuse me. I have, a, I have a little cough. It's not COVID-related. I got a test. Um, not not that can affect anyone through the phone, anyways. But you never know. Um, I mean, I, I, I've heard so much about COVID. I mean, you might be able to transmit it over the radio. We don't know. <laughs> exactly. Uh, you know, COVID COVID in spirit, right? <laughs> um, but yeah. So um, so in terms of the limits, there's a couple different ways we can look at this. So we can look at it from one direction, uh, which we say is the anthropocentric direction. Um, you know, the human direction. And that is, you know, we want to make sure that any of the changes that we're making and the reasons why we're doing them are ultimately, you know, for the benefit, you know, of human beings and are not something that's going to be harmful or hurtful to us. And so, and we always want to, you know, like in this case, respect the dignity of the patient who received this modified organ transplant, um, and make sure that again, it's something that you know he you know gave his autonomous consent to, that he understood what he was you know getting into, um, and that truly was something that was you know hoped to be of benefit to him. Then we can also look at it from the perspective of of the animals or of nature in general, and understanding that you know we are stewards of nature. Um, you know we are not masters or lords over nature. And there is, you know, the, the so-called playing God concern that shouldn't stop us, in my opinion, from, again, interfering with nature, from understanding that we do have a legitimate role as sort of co-creators with God, but that there are limits to this. And so there are concerns about, um, again, us merely, you know, using animals as mere tools um, for our own benefit and concerns that we don't always know what we're doing. And that if we do make some of these genetic modifications, um, might we introduce, say, novel diseases or so on um, that wouldn't have, have happened before? So I would say those are the kind of the main concerns on the table. We're talking with uh, Dr. Jason Eberl, who is a professor of healthcare ethics at the Albert Nagy Center at St. Louis University, and we're talking about the uh, the, the bioethics around um, using genetically modified animal parts, really, to uh, to kind of help heal and uh, and and 
contribute to human health. Let's. I, I'd like to kind of take both of those. You 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 kind of laid that out very well, but you said there's sort of two two sides to the to the question of of where are the limits and. I want to look at that anthropocentric question first. So, um, you know, human beings are uh, human beings are are honestly a lot more important than pigs, and so you know, human health is paramount there. Um, but on the flip side, this idea that doing something for the benefit of humanity and, and making sure that we've got a particular technology and we're going to try to constrain it so that's only used for the benefit of technology sounds a lot like nuclear energy and what was said about, you know, nuclear power before we developed atomic weaponry out of it and started using it to bomb people. Well, you know, this is, this, this is something that, that we can use for good. And so we should go ahead and, and, you know, develop the technology, even though it's got possibly nefarious uses. Um, how, how does that weigh in if, if it's possible to be used in an evil way? Shouldn't that be a red flag that maybe we shouldn't develop the technology to do it? Yeah, no, that's, that's a wonderful question because, um, you know, there, there's the you know, ancient myth of uh, Pandora's box, right? That that the minute you open it, you, you can't close it, and you sort of have to live with whatever consequences are going to come, um, even those you didn't intend and can't really control for. Um, you know, one thing I'll note at the outset is that, I mean, this is true for just about everything that exists, right? Um, the same chemical compounds um, that are ingredients in our food can also easily be manipulated to make poison, right? And Humans have been poisoning each other for thousands of years, right? So it's almost unavoidable that in the world in which we live, that we're surrounded by things that can be used, you know, for nefarious means, right? And, um, you know, we, we, we use a, a hammer to pound nails to construct things like houses that we need to live. You can also hit someone in the head with a hammer and kill them in an act of violence, right? So... The question becomes whether certain forms of technology sort of more easily lend themselves to to the temptation uh, to that sort of nefarious use, right? So again, you could have imagined, you know, the scientists in the early 20th century who you know, figured out how to split the atom and, and generate energy through nuclear fission, um, <coughs> excuse me, um, could have only been oriented towards uh, creating you know, a, a, a source of energy. However, as we know from, you know, the history of it, that the only reason that, uh, that the scientists and what became known as the Manhattan Project got the government funding to eventually be able to perfect that technology was to create a bomb, right? So you have this, this, um, this long history of, um, especially in, the, in, in more recent history, of the financing of science being, you know, done, you know, primarily through governments. Now, of course, we have a lot of private corporations funding science uh, for their own purposes. And yeah, sometimes these purposes can be good, but sometimes they can be inherently bad. So, and, yeah, that, that, that's an inter- yeah, that, that that's an interesting question. If um, and and I I, I know the uh, you know CRISPR technology well maybe it was but the the CRISPR technology seems like it was not developed 
necessarily for nefarious purposes, but let's hypothetically say it was. What are the ethics of using something that was developed for nefarious purposes for, you know, something that's that's good? I mean, is there sort of an ethical question mark around nuclear energy because of that? Because it was developed sort of after that same technology was used to develop the atomic bomb. Yeah, so this gets us to the question of uh, moral cooperation with, um, with in this case, you know, what what historically was or what could be um, hypothetically in different contexts a uh, a past evil, and this of course has been a relevant question um, during the, the the current pandemic with um, you know the vaccines that were developed having been um, either produced or tested using at least one immortalized cell line from uh, uh, an aborted fetus. And, you know, given the, the, the church's, you know, view on abortion, um, you know, whether, uh, you know, those of us who, you know, take the vaccine who are benefiting from it are, um, in, some, in some sense, you know, being, you know, complicit in that, in that past evil. And, and, you know, the Vatican has spoken, you know, specifically about this issue about the vaccine, saying that, no, this is, uh, you know, in, in technical terms, remote material cooperation. Um, it's not as if we're, you know, uh, going to generate future evils uh, as a result of this. And so, you know, taking the Church's sort of decision, um, which I affirm about, you know, the, the, the moral aseity of taking the COVID vaccine, I think we apply it to the, these other types of cases and say, yeah, the, the, the historical background by which this technology was created is something we should, you know, condemn, that we should be morally opposed to, it doesn't necessarily morally taint the technology itself. Um, if the technology, again, can be used for morally licit, beneficial purposes. So we, we should never forget that history. We should never, we should always be mindful of the source from which a particular technology comes from, if that source um is morally problematic or, or just outright, you know, egregiously morally wrong. But that doesn't necessarily, in all cases, mean that we can't use the technology uh, for morally illicit purposes. So how does that how does that differ from like the situation with the Nuremberg codes, right? So you had um, the Holocaust and horrible, horrible things happened during the Holocaust, one of which was experiments on human beings, um, horrendously unethical experiments on human beings. Um, but the Nazis were one thing they were fantastic record keepers and they kept meticulous medical notes about some of these ghoulish experiments they did. And those have been off limits to science. Basically, science said we're not going to use those. Um, how does how does that situation differ than you know, say the the, the situation of uh, you know the vaccines or something like that, where you know you had a, a, a horrendously awful you know immoral act in the past that now we are using um, for the benefit of science. Yeah. So so actually, um, a slight corrective uh, there to the, to your setup, Mark. Um, scientists actually have used uh, some of the data from the um, from the you know, egregiously immoral Nazi experiments. So, for example, one of the experiments that the Nazis uh, did was to test the limits of uh, survivability in conditions of hypothermia. Right, so they would put um, concentration camp prisoners into you know ice cold baths 
um, and basically just leave them in there to wait to see how long it takes them to die. And that data was actually used um, by Allied forces, uh, specifically the, the Royal Air Force, the British Air Force, to, um, to better uh, assess how long they su- su- should search for, um, say, um, uh, sailors and other victims of a boat sinking in the cold waters of the North Atlantic. So they use the Nazi data to gain a better understanding of how long a human can survive conditions of hypothermia to know how long they should keep searching and holding out hope of rescuing prisoners from or rescuing victims of, of ship sinkings. And there are other examples, too, of, of information that actually is in some current medical textbooks. And um, a colleague, former colleague of mine was part of a, uh, uh, a panel that was uh, put together by the Smithsonian uh, several years back in, in Washington, D.C., uh, to ask specifically about this. And they had a number of, of experts on the history of the Nazi experimentation of the Holocaust um, and some Holocaust survivors uh, sort of testify uh, in, this, in this study group. And what he told me is that the, the sort of, not that everyone fully agree, but the, the kind of largely consensus opinion that came out of this um, was that it's okay to use the information, but always acknowledge the source. In other words, honor the victims by always acknowledging what was done to attain this, again, beneficial information. So again, the opinion of at least some of the Holocaust survivors, um, and I'm sure there are plenty of others who would say, no, you can't use this data ever, but at least in this particular study group, the, the opinion was, yeah, if this can help humanity, we can honor the victim by helping humanity, but let's never forget what was done, you know, to gain this information. So, you know, it, and again, that, that ties in, you know, what, what the Vatican said about the COVID-19 vaccines is that, yeah, always acknowledge the source. We should be, um, you know, those of us in the pro-life community should be advocating for, uh, for you know, use of vaccines that are developed um, in a more, you know, ethical manner that doesn't rely on these particular cell lines. Certainly we should not be creating new immortalized cell lines from abortion or from, you know, leftover human embryos from IVF. But that, in, but that as long as we're acknowledging that source and so on, that it's, that we can still benefit, um, you know, from, from, uh, for, uh, from these particular vaccines. Yeah. And, uh, you know, profit motives, I think also then, you know, kind of add a, a bit of a, a, a line there that, um, you know, obviously you don't want people profiting off of, you know, immoral experiments, immoral procedures, you know, immoral um, studies and things in the past. You, you want to make sure that there's not a, uh, the, the, that somebody's not continuing to profit off of something like that. No, that's exactly right. But, you know, and unfortunately, I mean, in the world we live in, most pretty much everything we do involves some exchange of money. Um, and, and so uh, why I agree with, with what you said, Mark, 100%, the question is, yeah, how, what mechanisms can we put in place to avoid that? And I'll say one other aspect of this, too, is what we really want to avoid is the risk of scandal. The scandal, in this case, referring to doing something that in and of itself may be morally licit, but might lead another person to commit something morally wrong. And so the concern being is that in, in appropriating the fruits of 
morally illicit research um, for human benefit, might we scandalize other researchers in the future to do similar types of morally illicit activity? And of course, when it does come to you know research, I mean, both in the U.S. and worldwide, we have very strict research regulations in place and oversight um, to make sure that something like the Nazi experiments are never done again. Unfortunately, when it comes to the misuse of uh, preborn human beings, um, while we're you know we're not you know to be clear, <clears throat> it's it's not the case that. Um, even in the past, that fetuses were ever aborted in order to gain research material. What happened was, you know, a fetus is aborted, and then you have this, you know, the fetal the fetal corpse, and that, you know, in a few cases, scientists have then used that 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 corpse tissue to generate these immortalized cell lines. Um, but what we do have still is the concern about using human embryos um, to generate. Uh, embryonic stem cells, and and the church has been very clear in its condemnation, not of stem cell research across the board, because you can get stem cells from all sorts of morally illicit sources, but specifically with respect to deriving it and, and destroying human embryos. So, again, with all these things, we want to make sure that as we're appropriating the fruits of the past for morally illicit purposes, we are not potentially scandalizing the future. Right. And, you know, that issue of scandal kind of brings us back to sort of the original case we were uh, talking about. We're talking with uh, Professor Jason Eberle, who's a uh, professor of healthcare ethics at the Albert Nagy Center of Healthcare Ethics at St. Louis University. And we're talking about... Um, a case where a gentleman had a genetically modified pig heart um, transplanted to, um, you know, help prolong his life. And unfortunately, it only prolonged his life for, for a few months. Um, and that brings us, you know, that, that issue of scandal, I think, brings us to the, the question of consent with him. Um, you know, he was, from my, my understanding of the case, you know, this was a, a last resort type of thing. You know, all other avenues had been exhausted and so he kind of decided yeah he would uh allow himself to to be used i guess to uh to a i guess for a, a last chance but also you know maybe for for the benefit of science to uh to to be able to to be yeah experimented on for for lack of a better word um you know to what extent does that um cause scandal of now you've got you've got one guy that said okay yeah i'm going to uh, allow myself to be experimented on to what extent does that sort of i guess encourage others to do the same thing is that immoral in itself um you know where does his uh his consent or maybe you know kind of a little bit of pressure based on his circumstances how does that all kind of play out in this in this situation yeah, and so in the context of research uh, ethics, one of the primary concerns is that the patient uh, or the research participant um, is giving their, you know, fully informed <clears throat> um, consent to, you know, participate in this, you know, novel, risky uh, procedure. And, of course, as you know, in not just in this case, but in so many cases of medical research, um, you know, the, the patient's own circumstances, you know, them having, you know, a, a serious or terminal disease um, is in the background of their giving of consent. And, of course, if we disallowed 
Like if we simply said that, oh, any patient who is suffering a terminal illness and um, and you know some experimental procedure is their last resort, um, that's just coercive and they can't give consent. Well, then all sorts of research that we do, say on new novel cancer drugs and so on, um, or HIV treatments, um, would would stop, right? And 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 so we have been doing these types of experiments, um, you know, for decades, um, understanding that 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 a patient isn't essentially coerced um, simply by virtue of the fact that they may be seriously or terminally ill, and this is the you know only you know hope that they have for um, for, for potential treatment. Um, we do try to avoid what's called the the therapeutic misconception. Um, that, that basically when, it, when a patient enrolls in an experimental trial, the idea is that they should be doing it uh, for the altruistic reason of not necessarily helping themselves, but you know, contributing to the body of scientific knowledge that can hopefully help others in a similar position in the future. Um, but it can also potentially be beneficial for them. Um, and, and again, for people in this last resort type situation that that may be the primary motivator um, and so there you know there are concerns that this could impact their voluntariness um, I think the key way to control for that is to make sure that all other avenues um, all you know non-experimental normal therapeutic avenues uh, have been you know fully explored um, and that that patient has been given um, <clears throat> excuse me every chance to you know, to benefit from traditional, you know, tried and true therapies, um, but yeah, I, I, I don't think, and and it's not the not the way that we that we've been doing research to simply say that if it's the last resort, that one can't give voluntary consent to do it. Um, what yeah. what about the case of a, like a treatment or um, something like that that really has no chance whatsoever of benefiting um, the patient? You know, you know, perhaps it is a, a stage four cancer type of thing where, um, you know, there there's there's just absolutely no hope. But there's this new drug that, that that's that's being produced, etc. Um, what are the ethics around somebody saying, yeah, just solely for the benefit of science? Um, yeah, I'll, I'll let you uh, I'll let you use that drug on me yeah yeah that's a very interesting question the the you know one of the other sort of controls in our uh, or limits in how we you know the ethics of, of biomedical research is that the risks should never outweigh the benefits or the potential benefits now in this case we you know the case you you described is one in which um, there's you know definitely probably some risk to the patient because, uh, you know, there's always some risk whenever you're, um, you know, using a novel biomedical intervention and with really no expectation that there are any benefits to that patient, but that there may be benefits to others, right, as a result. And, you know, this runs up against the, you know, the classic, you know, Kantian uh, imperative to always respect persons as ends in themselves and never merely as means to another end. Oh, and you you just got us in trouble. Tim Tim is going to give us a scolding when he gets back that we are talking about Kantian ethics, but I'm delighted. <laughs> Go on. <laughs> well, at the very least, we can say this is a principle that, um, that coheres very nicely with uh, Thomistic natural law ethics as well. So, <laughs> um, but, um, 
But the point being is that, you know, the the key term there in that Kantian formulation is the word merely. Um, We use people all the time. In fact, I think earlier, uh, Mark, when describing, you know, the gentleman got the the pig uh, xenotransplant, you know, that he allowed himself to be used in this way, and he did. I mean, but I also used the grocery store clerk to, you know, ring up my groceries. Um, but as the clerk is doing that, I'm also respecting, you know, her or him as, as an end in themselves, right? I, I, I treat them with dignity as a human being um, as they are doing the service for me. And so that's the key here as well, right? Is this uh, stage four cancer research participant, um, are they being used merely as a means of some sort of end? Or are they, again, by virtue of giving their autonomous consent, um, allowing themselves to be used, but in a in a morally listed fashion, for the potential benefit, you know, of others. Right. Um, yeah. I mean, people participate in scientific experiments in a lot of different ways, right? The scientist contributes his knowledge, his his education, etc. Um, you know, other people contribute the materials, and so this patient, in in some way, it's not like he's being necessarily used. Um, you know, he he may it, it could be framed more as he's contributing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and in fact, we we've even changed some of the language um, in how we talk about what happens in research. We 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 used to use the term, and this term still used quite a bit of a research subject, right? And that implies the sort of passivity that you're being researched upon, um, even though you give permission to do so. And the kind of newer language we use is research participant, um, acknowledging that, yeah, the person involved in the research should truly view themselves as that, as a participant, um, as someone who has, you know, equal you know, moral stature to the scientists and to the potential beneficiaries of this research. And so that, once again, we need to make sure that they have, you know, adequate information to make a voluntary, uncoerced decision um, to allow their bodies or their minds, whatever the type of experiments being done, um, to be you know manipulated uh, in a way that again may benefit them, but that's, that should not be the reason why they're doing it. Yeah, we're talking with uh, Dr. Jason Eberl, a uh, professor of healthcare ethics at uh, St. Louis University. And I want to go back and talk about the animal side of of this uh, of this situation. We we've talked, I, I think, about the the human side quite a bit, but on, on the flip side, you know, we're also manipulating this this pig. Um, and I'm assuming in the process of genetically modifying a, a heart like this, there's no, you know, physical suffering for the pig. I mean, the pig just kind of grows with a, a genetically modified modified heart. But um, what are some of the ethical considerations of what we what we really should, what we really shouldn't do? I mean, when you start talking about genetically modified animals, there's a whole slew of science fiction and literature and, you know, even cartoons. Pinky and the Brain comes to mind of, uh, you know, the, the these lab rats. That, that have you know genetically modified human brains in them rather than uh, than than you know hearts. Um, what are the uh, you know, sort of what, what are the ethical limits of what we can do to the animals? Yeah. So so the the kind of parameters of this. So at the one end, you have the view, say, you know, of an organization like PETA that you shouldn't we shouldn't be using these animals at all, right? That 
the use of animals and experimentation to benefit humans is simply something we ought not to be doing, right? Um, whether we're genetically modifying them or not, right? So there's, you know, one, one pole of the debate. And then you have the other pole that is um, the, the concern that, particularly with genetically modifying animals, that, yeah, we shouldn't, you know, we, we, we shouldn't go in any direction that risks creating, you know, a, a, yeah, an island of Dr. Moreau's type of situation where you basically have humanized animals. And, of course, a lot of that is tied to the, any sort of neurological modifications, right? Again, uh, the, this particular pig that was modified in, in, in the particular real-life case, again, it was modified so that this pig would grow a heart which is functioning, yeah, functioning as a, as a heart for the pig that can also function, obviously, as a heart for a human. And the main modification was simply to turn off certain genetic markers that would trigger an immune response from the human recipient, right? So in all functional ways, this heart is not functioning any different from the pig. So I think you're right that we can, I think states assume that this pig, until it was obviously slaughtered to excise its heart and, and give it to the human, um, you know, didn't suffer in any particular way. But there are, you know, concerns about experiments, and these are experiments that actually are going on um, where there have been modifications made to um, animals neurologically. Um, there's a, a researcher at Stanford University, Irving Weissman, who um, is, has done experiments uh, and, that, and he's been doing this for you know, a long time. This has been like 15 years or so, um, grafting human neural stem cells into mice. And the idea is to grow mice who have not fully human brains. Uh, first of all, mice don't have the cranial capacity um, to grow a human-sized brain, except in cartoons. <laughs> right. <laughs> um, um, but to grow mice that have um, whose brains mimic the human neuro, human brains enough that we can then do experiments uh, for, say, potential treatments for Alzheimer's or Parkinson's and so on. And so the concern would be is if, you know, we start doing these experiments with, say, you know, animals, you know, like, you know, a, a member of the great ape species, right, a close evolutionary cousin whose brains are already very much like ours, and if we make some slight genetic modifications, could actually then grow a brain such that they can now think and reason and, and will the way we do, um, which would mean then we ought to treat them as persons. And the concern is that we probably won't. I mean, we, we have a hard time treating other fellow human beings as persons a lot of times. Um, so, so with these genetically modified animals, if, if, if that's the way in which we're modifying them, then we might, again, create beings who have intrinsic dignity now, but we're not recognizing that dignity. Um, and so, you know, so, so that would definitely be the, you know, the other side. So in, in the middle, I think we have something, really what Pope Francis says in Laudato Si, which is to recognize that while human beings, you know, there sort of is a hierarchy of being, and that human beings as rational animals, as created in the Imago Dei, um, the image and likeness of God, we do have a, a special dignity, a special status as persons. But nonetheless, the rest of the animal kingdom <clears throat> and the natural world as a whole has its own intrinsic value, right? We, we might 
not as you know we don't assign the same rank of dignity that 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 we assign ourselves, but that there is. Uh, an inherent value to the flourishing of, of animals and other things in nature that we ought to respect. And so it's not the, you know, the full strict Kantian uh, imperative of, of never using animals or other beings in nature uh, merely as a means to suit human ends, but to be very careful and, and uh, about what ends we are using um, animals and, and nature for, and, and always remembering that we are stewards of nature, we are not masters of nature. Yep. And since Tim's not here and we have full reign to uh, discuss Kant, you know, I, I, I think, but I think Kant actually adds another, um, a, a sort of another argument into it. And that is, you know, you know he in no way saw, you know, animals as, as persons and, and wouldn't argue that they, you know, solely need to be treated as, as ends and, and not as means. But he did um, say that we have to be careful how we treat animals because of what it does to humanity. Um, you know, the way we treat animals does affect our own ethics. It does. It does affect the way we treat one another. It does affect kind of what we're what we're willing to do. I mean, I think the uh, classic case of this is the, the the little boy with the magnifying glass, right? That's out on the sidewalk, frying ants with the uh, the the sun's rays as he's doing that. You know, any parent is going to come and stop the kid from trying to fry ants, and it's not because of any love of ants that mom might have, but it's because we recognize what damage that does to his psyche by doing these these uh you know quote-unquote experiments on the ants yeah no that's exactly right and and uh to make tim happy in absentia um or maybe this will set him even further i'll note that aquinas said exactly pretty much exactly the same thing as kant did that that you know aquinas was by no means uh an animal rights uh advocate as we would think of them today but he did say um as you just noted that you know, when we think about, you know, human beings as creatures of habit, right, we talk about virtues and vices, that cultivating the habit of acting cruelly to animals um, could then develop certain vices that, you know, lead to cruelty to other human beings, which starts with, you know, often dehumanizing them, right? You, you know, we've talked about the Holocaust, and, you know, that was, <coughs> you know, sort of the first step was, for the Nazi to dehumanize others, you know, who, who didn't fit their their metric of of, um, of being a full fleshed uh, human being, um, and use that then to justify all the horrific uh, treatments and experiments and, and exterminations. So, so yeah, so so we definitely um, need to keep that in mind as well as we think about how we do animals and the natural world, and and maybe now to to upset you. Okay, wait. I, I wish I could see Tim as he listens to this you know, later on. Be like, no, I should have been there because damn it, they're talking about Kant and now Heidegger. Um, <laughs> so Heidegger is another thinker who has something to say on this. Not something about how we treat animals, but going back to the beginning of the discussion, just about technology in general, right? In his uh, famous essay, um, "The Question Concerning Technology," you know, Heidegger warns that. That technology, and he's talking broadly about all sorts of technology, even things that we would consider to be, you know, well, you know, harmless. But yet, it creates this sort of inframing um, in which humans who invent technology for us to use, it can become the situation where the the script gets gets flipped, and now we are 
the sort of what he calls the standing reserve, we become technologized and, and in a sense become now, instead of being masters over technology, technology becomes masters over us. I mean, just think of how, you know, how hard it is for us to resist looking at our cell phone when the screen lights up telling us we have a new text, right? We're like programmed to be responsive to this, you know, little rectangular device um, that was created to serve our ends, but how often are we being solely responsive to what it wants us to do? Right, and and not only that, but, uh, you know, in the cell phone technology has transformed us into being, you know, marketing agents. You know, each each individual is now sort of feeding their own marketing preferences, their own wants, their own desires into the phone, which is then, you know, transferring it so the, the the people themselves, you know, all of us, we've been transformed a little bit um, into basically this sort of autonomous marketing agent. So the technology has a has the capability to uh, to transform our own identities to a certain extent. And you know, getting back to um, getting back to the animals, um, you know, th- how much of a danger is there as we start to use pigs as you know organ incubators? Um, for human beings that we we kind of distort and transform the idea of what a pig is and I, I guess to get at what I mean there my um, my daughter when we first read Charlotte's Web you know and I think a lot of parents have had similar experience experiences um, you know she was probably four or five and and so the connection between animal and food on the table really hadn't developed yet. And so Charlotte's Web was her first ex- exposure to this idea that, you know, the animals are actually what we eat. The food that's on our plate was an animal once upon a time. And uh, her reaction, though, was the exact opposite of what I expected. Um, we, we made bacon the next morning, and she was so excited because she was eating Wilbur. Um, <laughs> she thought this was cool, that she was eating Wilbur. So, you know, Wilbur had been transformed into a food item. Technology did that. Um, to what extent do is there a danger there that we're going to transform all of creation into, I, I guess, just simply sort of uh, reservoirs and incubators and, and things for our own human needs? Yeah, I mean, I, I, that, I think that, that that is not that's not only a danger implying that some sort of like future thing that could happen. I think that's already the reality in which we live, unfortunately. Um, you know, factory farms and, and so on. Um, you know, you know, I, you know I'm, I'm not a vegetarian by any stretch, but I'm still sensitive to a, a lot of the concerns about how our food gets produced. Um, and, you know, things like, you know, farm to table and so on, that is trying to connect people more with the sources of the food that we eat, um, um, including and especially uh, the meat that we do. Um, I think there's a lot of value to that, um, to say, look, we, we need to, yeah, the acknowledging of, of the source uh, of, uh, of where this is coming from. And so I don't think when it comes to, say, like, you know, using animals for xenotransplantation, I don't think that in and of itself that's just another way in which we are using animals for human purposes. And so the same ethics apply, meaning that I don't think that's going to, that could exacerbate the issue if, say, now we're mass factory farming animals with genetically modified organs to transplant into humans. Um, 
that, yeah, we can lose that connection. And, and I think the cost of losing that connection is losing the gratitude for the creation that God has given us and the intellect that God has given us so that we can create this technology, that we can create these tools. So on the one hand, say I'm not against, I'm personally not at all against xenotransplantation in principle or this particular experiment that was done uh, at NYU because, you know, there are, you know, 100,000 people on the transplant waiting list and, and, and thousands of them, you know, will die before they're able to get an organ um, because, you know, we don't have enough, you know, humans willing to donate their organs. And that's, you know, maybe the other side of this, too, is that for people who maybe do have concerns about xenotransplantation, uh, either in principle or concerns that, as you're raising, Mark, that it could lead to this kind of further um, lack of, of understanding and valuing and respect you know, for, for the intrinsic value of, of animals and other and the rest of creation, um, then, you know, we kind of then need to step up with being willing, you know, to donate our own organs, you know, once we're deceased, uh, to give what Pope Benedict the Sixteenth, you know, has, has referred to multiple occasions as this tremendous gift, this gift of life uh, to another to another human being. And so if we're getting that gift of life from animals, then we need to, again, acknowledge and respect that gift that they are giving us, just as they give us the gift of life when we eat them as bacon and, and derive protein from that. <laughs> well, we've been talking with uh, Dr. Jason Eberl. He is a uh, professor of healthcare ethics at St. Louis University. And uh, thank you very much for, uh, for, for being with us here on The Cave, Dr. Eberl. Uh, you know, the, the conversation has moved to a point where my next question was going to be probably more metaphysical than ethical. So I think we'll have to, I'll, I'll raise the question as a teaser, but I think we're going to have to have you back on at some point maybe to discuss this because it, it dovetails with your, uh, with, with the, the class you're teaching right now about identity and, um, and sort of where that comes from. But, you know, with this ability to change the, the, the genome with, with the CRISPR technology, are we blurring the lines of species? Are we, are we kind of turning animals into this one big, long continuum where the difference between a cat, a dog, a pig, a human, all of those are becoming more blurred and on a continuum? Or are there still set, you know, sort of, you know, I guess, rigid categories for these species? But, um, you know, unfortunately, we're going to have to kind of dangle that in front of our listeners and uh, hope that they, uh, they tune in in the future. Yeah, hopefully they, uh, they they tune in and then write comments demanding that we have this follow-up discussion. <laughs> All right. We'd like to thank Dr. Jason Eberl, our honorary caveman, for joining us again. We'll be back to wrap this up in just a couple minutes. You're listening to The Catholic Cave on Catholic Radio Indy. You're listening to Catholic Radio Indy, converting the culture to Christ through radio, featuring 100% Catholic programming 24-7. Do your friends a favor. Tell them about Catholic Radio Indy. Alexa, what's the weather forecast for today? Alexa, what time is the Colts game today? Alexa, remind me to pick up the dry cleaning tomorrow. Has Alexa become a part of your daily routine? Then make sure that routine includes Alexa, Play Catholic Radio Indy. Catholic Radio Indy. Quick, easy access to Catholic programming 24-7. Just say, Alexa, play Catholic Radio Indy. 
Catholic Radio Indy. So, the scan button brought you here. Awesome. We like company. Get to know us. And if you have to leave, come back. You're always welcome. Catholic Radio Indy. Welcome back to the Catholic Cave. We've been talking with Dr. Jason Eberl about all kinds of uh, things, including xenotransplantation, which, uh, you know, we were talking about the fact that uh, a man had a modif- genetically modified pig's heart implanted into him. And uh, I just brought back an old story about uh, years ago, Arnold Schwarzenegger had to have a uh, valve replaced in his heart. And he was on the show with, uh, uh, I believe it was Jay Leno. And uh, Jay brought up the subject that, uh, you know, sometimes those those valves that they put in come from cows or come from pigs and he you know he asked arnold you know you know you you've got this valve do you do you know what was it a cow was it a pig was it mechanical and arnold just looked him square in the eye and said well i don't i'm not really sure but i cry every time i eat bacon (laughs) and we were talking about modifying people and that poor arnold schwarzenegger's become irish kent (laughs) (laughs) well you know i don't do a good german or austrian so you know yeah, but you know, it, it, it is a it, it's a fascinating topic, and it's a topic that I think is going to be recurring over time as as technology progresses, and we are able to utilize animals a little bit more to, you know, honestly, this was done to solve a very practical problem. And that is, you know, there, there weren't enough human hearts available for all of the people that could benefit from having a heart transplant. And so, you know, the idea of being able to use a pig heart and we already use pig valves, as you just pointed out. Mm So, I mean, the ethics around using a a heart versus a valve, um, you know, you, you kind of, yeah, it's not that much different. I think the the biggest difference is now we're talking about something that's been genetically modified. So, um, yeah, I think that adds a a little bit of a, 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 a new dimension but as technology progresses these uh these questions are going to get in- increasingly difficult i think to to sort of navigate and that's why in the future we're going to have to be uh have to keep uh dr jason eberl on speed dial so as these things come up we can address them right here on catholic radio indy's catholic cave for mark tuttle for dr jason eberl i'm kent blanford we will see you next time and until then be holy The Catholic Cave is a production of Catholic Radio Indy. Replays of this program are available in podcast form at catholicradioindy.org. Comments about this program can be addressed to Kent at catholicradioindy.org or by calling 317-870-8400. Did you miss something in this show or just want to hear it again? Podcasts of this and all our other great local programs are available 24-7 at catholicradioindy.org.